0: Welcome to How My Country Works, with your host, Stephen O'Shea, The podcast that rummages around the hoarder's basement of the global political system and pulls out the insightful gems hidden away at the back. Each episode, we'll be working alphabetically through different countries' politics so you can show off to your friends and maybe gain a slightly better understanding of just how those countries work. Next up, tucked away in Eastern Europe with a population of 2.8 million, and functioning as a parliamentary democracy, is Albania. In 1997, the country of Albania, which had only come out from behind the Iron Curtain of Communism seven years earlier, completely collapsed under an elaborate pyramid scheme. Citizens from across the country, unfamiliar with the newly created financial institutions, had piled their savings into new companies promising huge returns on investments. Like anything too good to be true, this most certainly was. After over two-thirds of the population had invested their money in these new firms, investors dried up, and so the companies began to falter on their payments and eventually collapsed. This led to international assistance from the World Bank and the IMF, the collapse of the government and rioting that claimed the lives of over 2,000 people. So how did Albania arrive at this point, and where is the country now? On the show today, I'll be chatting to Fred Abrahams from Human Rights Watch and author of Modern Albania, From Dictatorship to Democracy in Europe. Who will be chatting to us more around the financial crash and Albania's modern politics? But before that, we're going to go back a bit further in Albania's history and chat to Professor Peter Morgan, who is the Director of European Studies at the University of Sydney. Peter, welcome to the
1: show. My pleasure, thank you for inviting me.
0: I might start by asking how the Ottoman Empire, which existed between 1299 and 1923, shaped Albania, as it seems pretty influential.
1: It's a good question because the Ottomans are essential to understanding the Balkans. Around in the 1300s, by the mid-1300s, the various kingdoms and nationalities of of the Balkans were starting to take shape. You had a Bulgarian empire already. You had a Serbian kingdom. The Albanians were also um, starting to go through those processes of pre-national formation that, you know, we see in Britain Around the same time, the leading families of Albania were starting to fight it out with each other for um, predominance and they needed mercenaries. And so some of them invited foreign mercenaries to fight for them. And amongst those foreign mercenaries were this new group, still very disorganised, of um, Turks broadly uh, from today's Turkey, the Seljuks uh the very beginnings of the ottomans they came in as mercenaries in the first instance and fought um, on behalf of albanian dynasties
0: so it was almost like they had some people on the inside already
1: they've got a little bit of advanced knowledge because of these mercenaries but when they come in as the ottoman empire they very quickly subjugate the um the balkans both from the western and from the eastern sides so by the four, or early 1400s, the Ottomans are well and truly entrenched in the Balkans.
0: This brings me on to Gergi Kastrioti, a national hero, right?
1: That's Skanderbeg. Yeah, that's the famous uh, Albanian hero Skanderbeg, who comes across, comes along a little later. Skanderbeg is one of uh, is is a phenomenon of the Ottoman Empire. Namely, it's a big empire. Um, there are strong leaders within the empire, and every now and then uh, these leaders split off, challenge the Ottomans, and try to create their own kingdoms. Skunderbeg did that. Skanderbeg himself had been a a, um, a Janissary. He'd been one of those um, children from the Balkans taken back to Constantinople and trained up as a soldier for the Sultan. Uh, he became very powerful. He went back. He became the vizier or the pasha of of that area, and he then identified back as an Albanian and challenged the Ottomans.
0: So what was life like under the Ottomans for the Albanians?
1: The thing about the Ottomans was that if you converted to Islam, there was no more discrimination against you. The fact that you're Albanian or Serb or Bosnian was immaterial. You were a Muslim and you could rise to the highest levels of the Ottoman Um, administration and many did famously in the Ottoman Empire and Albanians in particular so you know for a country which had also been at the fault line between orthodoxy and Catholicism and which had its own folk religions before that another religion more or less who really cared it was the Islam of Albania was typically a very open and very flexible Islam It was not the hardline Sunni Islam of the the Ottoman centre, but it was still Islam, they were Muslims, and that opened up doorways to the very top of the empire. That's a powerful attraction to a people that wasn't hugely religious. So it
0: wasn't all bad then? Kind of like the Monty Python skit of what did the Romans ever do for us?
1: Well, yes, there was a bit of that, yes, yeah, yeah.
0: So what sparks the formation of the modern Albanian state after the Ottomans in the early
1: 1900s? The main force or the main impetus for the Albanians to become involved in the wars and to carve out a a set of borders and call themselves Albania was the fact that the Ottoman Empire was in complete disarray by this stage. Uh, The First World War was about to break out. All Europe was just waiting on edge for that to happen. In the Balkans, because of the situation with the Ottomans, the Greeks had already broken away and were increasingly drawing boundaries that um, impacted on Albanian occupied areas of what we would call northern Greece, what they call northern Epirus. The Serbs, also in these mixed environments, were starting to draw boundaries which went deep into Albania, certainly deep into Kosovo. The Macedonians, likewise the Albanians, to a certain extent, were on the back foot and had to sort of push for a national identity because they were in danger of losing theirs simply by virtue of the power of these nascent new Balkan states that were carving out identities and borders. And Albania was was not really being, no attention was being paid to Albania.
0: So then Albania experiments with democracy and a monarchy in 1928, which is heavily reliant on Italy for support. This doesn't seem to work out so well when the Second World War breaks out, right?
1: But Albania is very much cap in hand to Italy up until thirty nine, and then in thirty nine, the Italians under Mussolini simply invade Albania,
0: and then the communists come in, led by Enver Hoxha,
1: right? The communists at the end of the Second World War, at the end of uh, forty four, or actually earlier in forty four, the communists who did not have a long history in Albania, they basically arose during the Second World War with Yugoslav support, they liberated Tirana and put into place the communist regime from 1944, which lasted pretty well unchecked until 1990. Hodja puts in a Stalinism, uh, and unlike other areas of the Soviet Union, It remains resolutely Stalinist, even after the death of Stalin. So there's no Khrushchevite reform, etc. There's no post-totalitarianism, as there is in Czechoslovakia or other places, Poland. Uh, It remains resolutely Stalinist.
0: So this sealing off under the Ottomans and then under the Communists seems to have protected Albania from things like the breakup of Yugoslavia next door, but also meant that it was closed off from much of the world's developments.
1: Um, so yes, as a result of primarily the communists, it remained closed to really everything that happened in the 20th century, uh, or the first 60 years of the 20th century, 70 years of the 20th century.
0: Thanks so much for your time, Peter. My
1: pleasure, Stephen.
0: To talk a little bit more around modern Albania, we're lucky enough to have the author Fred Abrahams join me. Welcome to the show, Fred.
2: Well, thanks for reaching out, first of all. I i, I, to- I I can't uh, easily turn down a, a uh, request to talk about Albania. So.
0: so we just spoke with Peter about the closing off of Albania by the communists and Enver Hoxha. How do you think that has impacted the Albania of today?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, Albania today is still dominated by Enver Hoxha or by Enver's ghost. Um, and he he played a, you know, just an omnipotent, dominant ever-present role uh, in Albania's post-war period, and you still see that uh, today. He was a very, very talented politician, very charismatic, clearly very intelligent, and very brutal. Uh, and maybe it was his brutal character that's the defining feature uh, of this leader and what it enabled him to seize control and maintain it for, you know, four decades.
0: So he basically dominated politics in Albania for 40 years and pretty much swept aside anyone that could potentially challenge him. That must have really hurt Albania's ability to open up, even after his death.
2: In the end, it had a devastating effect because he was surrounded by single fans and people who you know, would only be, yes, you know, men, mostly men, a uh, few women, um, and wouldn't challenge him. And um, it led Albania into despair. So that when the, in the 80s, when the rest of Eastern Europe was beginning to reform and perestroika and glasnost and a bit of economic opening up, Yugoslavia was opening, Hungary was op- and Albania was as tight as ever because no one dared to challenge Hoxha um, in his strict orthodoxy. And so it, it had a very damaging effect.
0: It seems odd because on the face of it, Albania is a thriving democracy now. It's a member of NATO since 2009. It's trying to join the EU. It has clear parliamentary elections every few years, and then those parliamentarians elect the president for a maximum of two five-year terms. But I feel like it doesn't work so well in practice. Could you elaborate?
2: So uh, it is not like that in practice. No. Um, you know, so Campania has benefited a lot from um, you know all of the attention, the aid from the European Union, the Council of Europe, the United States. I mean. Um, and and well, also from the east, uh, Turkey and even Gulf states. But you know, it's, it it speaks the rhetoric of pluralistic democracy.
0: So it's got the look, then.
2: Sure, there's a parliament. You know, there's a constitutional court. There's a separation of powers uh, in the, a, on paper. Um, but in reality, Eddie Rama has a, a, a strong grip uh, on the economy, uh, on the politics, and uh, on the media.
0: And Eddie Rama is the current prime minister.
2: Yeah. Yes. So it has all the appearances of a democratic state, uh, but under the surface, um, it is so far from from democratic on many, many, many levels. You know, one of them is the legacy of Hoja. As I mentioned, Albania has a, uh, a political culture that is still dominated by the leader, by the person and usually the man one person who has control. And the post-communist period is exactly the same. You've had dominant figures who have ruled since 1992.
0: And so just rewinding back a little bit, we started the podcast chatting about the financial crash in 1997. Can you tell us a little bit more about
2: that? No, it's a fascinating topic. So um, in 1997, uh, the, the Albania saw a um, a proliferation of these pyramid schemes or Ponzi schemes. Right. So, you know, very simple, you know, you invest and then you get you have to get a few more investors um, and or not you, but you, you 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 earn your profits based on others who follow. Um, and then in 97, they crashed spectacularly and not only just like financially, but it caused, um, you know, severe political uh, unrest and um, a collapse of the government, total anarchy, About 2,000 people died in the in the chaos, Um, the the, the political opposition obviously tried to use it, the government cracked down, and uh, it it forced actually an international uh, military intervention. Um, There was a coalition led by Italy that had to come in as kind of peacekeeping forces in a domestic disturbance. So, wow,
0: an international intervention. That's incredible.
2: I mean, I can just say just two things that were really interesting about how did, how did this happen, right? How did this happen? I mean, you know, I mean, one is the economics and the other is the politics, right? And it's actually more the politics than the economics. Because what happened is when, when, when communism fell and Albania opened up, there was a general sort of neoliberal assumption that, um, that free elections and market economy would bring prosperity and stability. But Albania didn't have the infrastructure, literally. So it didn't have the laws. It didn't have the regulations and the laws to govern a free market economy, right? Um, it didn't have the free the courts where you could have independent arbiters of disputes on contracts or anything else that was, you know, land property property disputes. Um, and, it, and it didn't have the expertise. You know, it didn't have enough people who understood in finance. And so without that regulation these pyramid schemes were just allowed to blossom they, because the, and the banking system was not functioning. And, um, and, but two, uh, two important factors. One is it was connected with criminality because at the time there was the war in former, former Yugoslavia.
0: This is the war within the former Yugoslavia that eventually leads to its collapse and the formation of countries like Serbia, Croatia, Montenegro and Bosnia and Herzegovina.
2: And um, and the big business going on in Albania that at that time there were sanctions on Yugoslavia. Right. U.N. U.N. enforced sanctions on on Yugoslavia. And at the time, uh, Albania was smuggling oil. So oil was getting smuggled from Albania into into Montenegro um, and then Serbia. It was actually getting imported from Italy and Greece and then exported. And because pyramid schemes cannot give uh, 20, 30, 40 percent interest rates. On, on their own. There has to be another source of income. And it was the oil smuggling. That's one. But the other point I want to make on this is the politics, right? That, that, that was the economic side. The political side was that Albania was seen as the shining star, this incredible example of um, post communist success. So, this wonderful fairy tale narrative that Albania was blossoming as a democratic state. And no one wanted to criticize Albania in 1997, not the United States, not Western Europe, not the International Monetary Fund, not the World Bank. Everyone was saying this was a success story. And no one wanted to look more closely and say, well, hold on a second. Something serious is going on. And they knew. Because if you go back and look at the documents, anyone who understood economics knew the pyramid schemes were bubbling up from late '96. From '96, they were—they existed. I mean, everyone knew they were open. They openly existed, and no one wanted to say really shut it down. And the government said, "Wait until after the elections," because there were elections coming up. Uh, and so everyone just mum, No one criticized them, and then they collapsed. And uh, they created just you know incredible turmoil. As I said, you know, two thousand people died. The country was set back three, four, five years. Um, and, uh, you know, s- still, still suffering the repercussions of that. So it was, it was a political short-sightedness um, in terms of the, the, the reforms, not setting up the proper infrastructure, this, this naive neoliberal approach, naive, really naive, um, and an unwillingness to, um, to express criticisms of the country that, that were obvious.
0: I suppose that lack of criticism comes from the fact that Albania is a relatively stable Muslim-majority country and a pretty good example of a parliamentary democracy at work with 140 deputies elected four-year terms. And of those deputies, 100 are elected by direct suffrage whilst the remainder are elected by proportional representation. The head of government, the prime minister, is then chosen from the leading party in parliament and selects his council of ministers, or the cabinet. The president, who serves as head of state, is then elected by the parliament for a five-year term, and can only serve a limit of two consecutive terms.
2: Um, and Albania sees itself as a pro-Western, most predominantly Muslim state, um, and uh, ha- has has played that role, um, you know, ever since ever since the nineties.
0: Thanks so much for that clarification, Fred. Well, as you might know, we try and finish every episode by asking our guests what a unique holiday or festival or event is from each particular country. I was hoping you might be able to do the honors for Albania.
2: I mean, I think you know the answer I was going to give. I, I sort of tipped my hand when we spoke about religion, which is um, Albanians really celebrate, you know, uh, uh, Christmas, Easter, um, Eid, uh, because it's a it's a really um, you know, multi-religious society, um, and Christmas and Easter, both both uh, Catholic and Orthodox. You know, and and there's a real harmony there. There's a saying that the um, the religion of uh, of Albania is Albanianism, uh, and because there is a there is a tradition, and there are also Jews actually um, in Albania. Uh, many of them went to Israel after communism fell, but there's a few a few Jews uh, still in in uh, in Albania. Um, and uh, there has been, there's a degree of, of, religious harmony. Um, there's a tradition in the politics of having different, different religions represented either the president and the prime minister and the speaker of parliament being from different, different religions. So, um, so yeah, there's been a, it's a, it's actually one of the, one of the, um, I think, um, one of the positive elements, uh, of that, of that moderate society. Uh, and this, this, and they share each other's holidays, you know, we'll, will we'll, um, uh, welcome them, we'll, we'll celebrate together um, and uh, respect, uh, respect each other's um, festivities.
0: <laughs> so their holiday is somehow all of the big religious holidays. Sounds good to me. Is there anything though that is particularly special about any of those holidays in Albania?
2: And there's a nice tradition of the, the public drummer who um, goes through the neighborhoods with a, you know, a sort of like a sheepskin drum and and bangs on it, going through the neighborhood and singing, and and people come out, and it's a it's a nice, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a sort of pleasant and very neighborhoody uh, um, thing. And then lamb, I think the Albanians are uh, are eating lots of lots of uh, I guess mutton, you would call it. So
0: well, I love lamb, so sign me up. And thanks for chatting to me today. That concludes our show today. Thanks to both my guests, Fred Abrahams and Peter Morgan. Please do check out both of their works on Albania, which I'll pop in the show notes. Alongside this, Anything by Ishmael Kadaré is a great additional insight into Albania, as there was so much we didn't get to touch on today. Join us next time where we'll be looking into the North African country of Algeria. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any of your friends who have a hankering for political knowledge follow us on instagram at how my country work for extra insights and facts and there you can also send us a message about albania or any other country and any other questions you might have see you next time and remember to keep asking how my country works